Today, the surveys indicate that most Americans get the majority of their news information from television. And so um, for the newspapers, it's, it's a very, very tough challenge. We have mixed, I have mixed feelings about it. I, I know there are some doggone good reporters working today and some darn good editors that care a great deal. Others, I think, are more caught up in trying to compete with television and, and turn out stuff that's entertainment and amusement as opposed to hard news. Every city, every era has its problems, and we've got problems on low-income housing and, and streets and sewers, everything. But uh, what's the projection now that something like 2010, I believe it is, that more 800,000 more people in King County, and that's going to jack the rents up. It's going to make all kinds of problems. But we'll, we'll make it. We'll do it. That's Richard Larson from the Seattle Times and Emmett Watson from the Seattle Post-Intelligencer and the Seattle Times from interviews that I conducted with each of them over 20 years ago. I had a show in the 1990s called Voices of Experience, just like now. It aired on Kixie, the sister station of KKNW. There was a segment within the show called Profiles of Experience that was sponsored by U.S. West, the company that provided phone service locally during that time frame, I say phone service because back then, that's about all that was available. Maybe a pager or something like that, but that was really about it. The focus of the segments was to talk with people who distinguished themselves during their careers. Richard Larson and Emmett Watson were household names back in the 1960s all the way through the 1990s. Richard Larson was an investigative reporter for the Times, as I mentioned, and Emmett Watson was a columnist for the Seattle Post-Intelligencer and then later in his career for the Seattle Times. Each of them spent 50 years in reporting. What's interesting about listening to these interviews now is that I was talking to them in the 1990s as a look back into their careers and then to ask them to look at the future of the Puget Sound region, and it's very interesting what they had to say. Now, both gentlemen passed away in 2001. A spoiler alert, Emmett Watson mused about the approaching home crisis in the Seattle area, and Richard Larson saw Puget Sound as being in the catbird seat of the technological revolution. Now, the only game in town at that time in the mid-1990s was Microsoft and Boeing. Richard Larson also covered the notorious Ted Bundy long before he was found guilty of the heinous crimes he befriended Ted Bundy when he was a rising star in the Republican Party, and he was being groomed as a future candidate for governor. We didn't cover that aspect of his relationship with Ted Bundy, but we did cover Ted Bundy in the interview. So we'll look back with my interviews with the late Richard Larson and Emma Watson coming up in just a few moments. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. I always enjoy interviewing people who interview other people for a living. What I find very interesting is most of them are very gracious, but it's interesting that some 
do not want to give an interview. And I find that very ironic, again, that this is how they make their living. Anyhow, a little sidebar. But the following people did agree to an interview and some very revealing things came through. For example, Richard Larson. He was a columnist in the Seattle Times for nearly a half a century. And he talks about one of the stories that he was absolutely consumed by. Emmett Watson, a columnist for the Seattle PI for over a half a century. And he was known as Mr. Lesser Seattleite. Well, this interview shows that he wasn't as Mr. Anti-Growth as many assumed. Our guest this week on U.S. West Profiles of Experience is former Seattle Times columnist Richard Larson. Mr. Larson, how did you get into the newspaper business? Well, I think rather than my getting into it, I think it sort of enveloped me over the years. When I was a kid in grade school, a um, teacher had me write a piece that uh, appeared in the school paper, and that was pretty heady to see your own stuff in print. <laughs> and uh, then later uh, at high school, and then later uh, when I was in the Army, it just happened that I was working on a newspaper. And uh, so eventually when I was in college, after playing around with two or three other majors, journalism kept bugging me. Well, then I became a major. And uh, no regrets. The, the, the thrill, I, I think, was uh, being involved in something that's really happening that's important. That's pretty exciting stuff, and be the first to know. What do you consider your biggest story? Well, I suppose the consensus on that one would be the coincidental uh, story uh, that also sort of pursued me. In 1972, during uh, covering the governor's race of Dan Evans that year, I became acquainted with a nice young man named Ted Bundy who was working in the Evans campaign. I wrote about Ted eventually, did a column, and he came into the Times, and we took his picture. It was newsworthy because uh, there was some evidence or some allegations, I think, for the Democrats at that time that Ted had behaved as a spy for the Evans uh, camp, and uh, I knew otherwise, and so wrote a piece. Anyway, that developed a relationship, and then, of course, as you know, the rest is history. A couple years later, Ted emerges as a suspect in all these murders that were, or disappearing girls that were going on. So I became the Bundy specialist and uh, covered Ted for the ensuing years, spent a lot of time with him in jails. And also down on his execution, ultimately, in Stark, Florida. So that was probably the big one. Now oh. that you're away from that for a while, do you have any different thoughts than when you were going through it? No, I, I feel pretty comfortable with it all. Um, one of the things that I did and I tried very hard, worked very hard at for all the years, is to maintain an objectivity about the case and to assume innocence during those years when everybody was uh, leaping to the conclusion that Ted was guilty. There was certainly some evidence, but I sort of held my uh, judgment and wrote in a very restrained way about the approaching uh, trials. To the extent that I was accused of um, being his public relations person, I refused to accept his guilt before a jury delivered that guilt. That was one of the most important and demanding elements of that story. Other areas, of course, my specialty was writing politics for the Seattle Times over um, so many years, a couple of decades or more. 
And some of the work that I did there is actually more rewarding. I remember starting in 1983 and 84, discussing and writing about uh, higher education in the state of Washington. Our higher education institutions and structure was in terrible decline at that point. And uh, I sort of wrote for years about the need to have a vibrant higher education system in the state to produce the kind of trained workforce that's necessary to create a vital economy. And I think there was a lot of payoff for that. It, I raised or helped raise that issue in priority, uh, political priority in Olympia. You're listening to my interview with Richard Larson in the 1990s. He was an investigative reporter for the Seattle Times. What he wanted to be known for mainly is no matter what party you were from or what partisanship you had, was just to create civility in the public debate. Mr. Larson, what do you think about the general media coverage today? Oh, gosh, it's just a dramatic change. That's why I watched the revolution. First appearance of television as a conveyor of news and information. You know, the Edward R. Murrow days and all that. And uh, today now, we uh, we in the newspaper business sort of dismiss TV as, uh, as kind of an entertainment novelty, not a very significant factor in news. Today, the surveys indicate that most Americans get the majority of their news information from television. And so, um, for the newspapers, it's, it's a very, very tough challenge. We have mixed, I have mixed feelings about it. I, I know there are some doggone good reporters working today and some darn good editors that care a great deal. Others, I think, are more caught up in trying to compete with television and, and turn out stuff that's entertainment and amusement as opposed to hard news. I miss depth coverage of some of the political issues that uh, I know are out there, <laughs> but I don't see them getting covered. Are you generally optimistic about the future of the Puget Sound region and the country? Oh, I'm high, high, high. I'm very bullish on the Puget Sound country for, for a couple of reasons. We're positioned so well economically for uh, international trade. We happen to have lucked into being a magnificent place for the whole technology sector. And in some ways, I think Boeing fits into the technology world as, as so. So I think we have the possibilities of um, even greater growth and dominance in the future. And simultaneously, we have a culture here of preserving this beautiful environment. Um, I just finished um, not long ago an interview or a series of interviews with uh, uh, 55 or 60 CEOs of top businesses on the east side and unanimously they were determined uh, they told me that uh, they wanted to give high priority to keeping the environment and quality of life we have so I think we can have it both ways if we do it well uh, I think there's a commitment there to have both economic growth, jobs good future and at the same time preserving quality of our environment. And you're optimistic we'll be able to do that? If anybody in the world can do it, we can do it here in Puget Sound. Well, Mr. Larson, thank you so much for spending time with us this morning on U.S. West Profiles of Experience. My commentary today is on organization, the real importance of being organized and how that helps you succeed in business. It is one of my questions I ask on the self-employment quiz. Are you organized? In real estate, the motto is Location, location, location. In business, it's organization, 
organization, organization. Time is your most precious commodity. The best use of your time should be spent selling your product or service. No one can do that like you. It is your vision. Don't abdicate that to someone else. Contract out repetitive functions like bookkeeping. Also, think about this. Saving two hours commute time a day will save you one full year of productivity in approximately 10 years. Organization or lack of organization often makes the difference between success and failure in the business. Success in business is all about developing systems that make doing your job at various levels easier and more profitable with each passing day. And the more organized you are, the faster and easier it will be to manage your business and make money. Being organized instills a sense of confidence in your clients and potential clients. There used to be and I say used to be, a print shop across the street from my office. I used to walk into the print shop and see scattered files all over the place, discs in disarray. It didn't really instill a lot of confidence that I would want to leave a big print project with them. And I didn't. I walked out never to return. That print shop no longer exists, and I'm not surprised. Bottom line, always be thinking of ways of making your company more organized, and that will make it much more efficient, and also save you a lot of money. And think about this, when you're on Facebook reading about flying monkeys in Australia or looking at some friend of yours or distant acquaintance on a European vacation going down the Rhine River waving at you, what did you learn from that? You really must discern how you spend your time. This is really extremely important to your overall success. Stay focused and stay organized. Now for my interview with Emmett Watson, Mr. Lesser Seattleite, as he was known for. But during the interview, he demonstrated a lot more tolerance for people moving into the Seattle area than he was known for. Our guest this week on Profiles of Experience, sponsored by U.S. West, is legendary columnist and Mr. Lesser Seattleite himself, Mr. Emmett Watson. Who does he consider the most influential people in Seattle's recent history? Well, there's a number of those. Eddie Carlson, Jim Ellis, Ned Skinner, several others who were guiding spirits in the progress of Seattle. Jim Ellis had a great deal to do with cleaning up Lake Washington, and he put me behind the forward thrust bond issue. Ned Skinner was... uh, Head of a uh, economic development group. It was a bit of a slump here after the World's Fair, and also at Boeing. You know, when Boeing had that recession in '69, and he went out and did a lot to diversify. He was quite a guy, Eddie Carlson. Eddie was a mover and shaker. Here was a guy who was got to the top at Western International Hotels, but Eddie got into this whole business of uh, community activism. And uh, he he just did a lot of things. He organized people. In fact, he was the guiding spirit of the World's Fair. I don't see any of them around now, but I think the whole culture and climate has changed now. We're all into these instant millionaires and billionaires, and some, some of them are doing some good. But you don't have that kind of leadership thing of somebody out there forward organizing. And, and that may come later, but it's kind of a different climate now. Now, do you think you've lost the battle of Lesser Seattle? I think that was a losing uh, uh, cause going in, and I've had a lot of fun with it. It irritated a lot of Californians, and 
Logically, you can't win that one. What era of Seattle is your favorite? Well, right now. I like it yeah, right now. Notwithstanding, we're going to... Every city, every era has its problems, and we've got problems on low-income housing and, and streets and sewers, everything. But uh, what the projection now that something like 2010, I believe it is, that more 800,000 more people in King County, and that's going to jack the rents up. It's going to make all kinds of problems. But we'll, we'll make it. We'll do it. But it's far more interesting city now. My heavens. Every time you turn around, there's a new era restaurant opening, and there's a uh, Major League Baseball, Major League Football, Major League Basketball. There's everything to do here. And so you have everything going here. There's action. There's fun. There's all of that. It's good. It's, there's a lot of substance in the city. For most of this century, Seattle was known as really a little fishing village to the north. What do you think turned that around? I've always thought that the real point of the turnaround was back in 1955 when Boeing developed the 707 and took us into the jet age. One of my good friends was Tex Johnston, who was the uh, test pilot on a lot of the early Boeing jets. And Tex rolled that mother over the, over the lake out there. and He got in trouble for that. And they said, what do, you, what do you think you were doing? He said, I was selling your airplane. And there were all the heads of airlines that seen this, and, and, and that's when Boeing began to come on, and that's when the whole region began to turn around. Legend has that you were quite a baseball player. Is that true? I, I was signed out of the UW. I played there at the UW for three years. And, but I was not a real prospect. Uh, but I hung on for a few weeks here and there and that kind of stuff. But no, I was not a good player. And then when did you transition into the writing profession? Well, the reason I got into writing is it was during the war. You had to, you had to get approval to work elsewhere than, say, the shipyards or Boeing. It was during the war. Well, I, uh, I was hard of hearing, and I was 4F, and I worked in the shipyards, and toward the end of the war, I began to, hey, wait a minute, I better look around here. So I looked out, and I got a job at the old Seattle Star. And this was shortly after the Rainiers let me go and fired me. And so they thought it would be a good idea to have an ex-Rainier player actually covering the team. And so they, so they hired me on space rates. And I would get $26 one week, $28 the next week. And, and I covered the Rainiers. That's how I got started. Final question, are you optimistic about Seattle's future? Yes, I, I am. I'm optimistic. Because you have Boeing with backed-up orders for heaven's knows a long time. And then you've got Microsoft. Notwithstanding the current uh, antitrust suit, Microsoft's going to endure, and it's, it's big, and it's well-run. And the one thing about Bill Gates that I will say, he wasn't just a computer nerd. When this guy began to develop a company, he proved he could run a company. And that's the success of Microsoft. Bill Gates ran that company and did it right. I think I could be optimistic. Our thanks to Mr. Emmett Watson for spending time with us for the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, the basic premise behind that concept is that in any customer interaction, we expect to be treated like crap. We don't really expect to be treated well. Uh, we expect for a poor interaction. We expect them to screw up our order or whatever it is we're looking for. I don't need people to be amazing. I don't need them to be over-the-top incredible. I just need them to be a little bit better than what we expect. Because our 
expectations are so low, if we can train our customers and major companies to just be a little bit better than essentially crap, uh, we can own the entire game. Exactly. Well, you know, one of the things I wrote a book recently called Pre-Flight Checklist is self-employment for you. And one of the points I make in the book is about the airlines and how incredible they really are that they move millions of people literally, and they really are the safest form of transportation. When I get into rent a car, then my experience goes down. And when I rent a car, I don't care what the agency is, I am so pleased when there is not something that goes wrong. Either the price is too high, the car is dirty, they treat you like hell, you don't know whether you have the gas option or not. It's always, always a negative experience, except, again, rare when I bring a car in. And based on your type of formula, I would, if I wanted to, is to start a rental car agency and do it right. Not only would I agree with that, but what I find really funny is that, again, the, the, one of the worst experiences I ever had was with Hertz, right? And I was at a place where all the car rental locations were in one building, so I just walked, I walked like 50 feet over to uh, Avis. And Avis, not only did they go out of their way to treat me well, but they, at that point they didn't have to. As long as they didn't essentially stab me in the eye, I would have been thrilled. Right, So I am a huge Avis fan for life now because all they did was just treat me a little bit better than Hearst did. My thanks to Peter Shankman, entrepreneur and author. His most recent book, Using Great Service to Create Rabid Fans, it is available on Amazon. Just to let you know, I am not paid any promotional fees for talking to Peter or any other guests. Following is a clip I downloaded from CNN, and it's an interview with Mitch Landrieu, and he's the former mayor of New Orleans, and he seems to me to be someone who would be a great presidential candidate for the Democratic Party. I just submit this for your consideration. Mitch Landrieu. Are you concerned at all about your party, as critics say, lurching to the left? Well, first of all, I don't speak for the National Democratic Party. As you know, I was the mayor of the city of New Orleans. Uh, so having said that, I have always talked about governing from the middle. I'm what they call a radical centrist. There are not many of us left anymore. Uh, and yeah, it is really important for us to make sure that if we are given the responsibility to govern, that we govern in a pragmatic way, in a big tent way that makes sense. I don't think abolishing ICE is a good idea, primarily because when police departments get out of the way, do the wrong thing or govern in the wrong way, you don't say get rid of the police department, you reform the police department. We are, in fact, a nation of immigrants. We know that. We're also a, a, a nation of laws. And I do think that Congress has been remiss in not passing comprehensive immigration reform. But it does have to be common sense. It has to be thoughtful. It has to protect the border while at the same time making sure uh, that everybody is, is dealt with in a constitutional way. I do, I, do, I do believe yeah. uh, very clearly that separating families from children was, was not a smart thing. It was a cruel thing. That really is not who we are, and there's a much better way to do that. As a centrist, as somebody who believes in, in governing from the center, are you concerned to see the Democratic Party, which you, you and your family have been proud members of for, for generations, going to the left on a lot of these issues? Well, I think that what you'll see, you'll see this with the Republicans and the Democrats, it happens every election cycle. The party themselves will get tested from the left, the middle, 
uh, and the right. Both parties are going to do that. And of course, that's going to happen to the Democratic Party, too. It's clear that President Trump is going to be the nominee of the Republican Party. And you will see a family fight on the Democratic side. And you see the party getting pulled to the left. You'll have people from the middle. You'll have people to the right of the party. And that's the way it's always going to be. Uh, if the Democrats want to win, they're going to have to govern responsibly. They're going to have to govern with common sense. They're going to have to think about what people in America want, which is essentially to have a great opportunity and great responsibility and a better chance for themselves and for their kids. So I think I would go into you know I think I would go into tech. Although although I'll say one curveball is that I'm a I'm a recycling obsessive, um, and so I could absolutely see myself um, having gone into something that tried to work within the world of recycling and um, uh, and and uh, or composting or something like that because I, I just think that that's an important uh, space and and could probably use uh, some more energy. I think there you're talking about finding a niche and solving a problem. That's what I advise people to constantly think as an entrepreneur. Think of a niche, something there, and it could be something that's being done, of course. I mean, we're not inventing the world all the time, but then you solve someone's problem. Recycling would be one of those. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's a good way to think of it. I mean, you know, entrepreneurism is problem solving and uh, a business is a successful business is solving a problem for people. And, you know, it's it's not always a problem that people are are out there articulating, right? I mean, Steve Jobs solved a lot of problems with the iPhone. Nobody knew that they had that problem. Uh, but, um, um, but it is absolutely watching what people do, thinking about what they could, what they need, and then going out and, um, and you know, and building something that people will love. Um, yeah, you know, you, you can't just create something because you like the idea. You have to create something because people will love it. That's Jason Pfeiffer, publisher and editor of Entrepreneur Magazine. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. That's all the time we have for this edition of Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. My thanks to the late greats, Richard Larson and Emmett Watson, for sharing their time and experience with us in interviews I had with them over two decades ago. Voices of Experience airs at 4.30 p.m. on Tuesdays and is repeated 8.30 a.m. Wednesday mornings. If you'd like to talk to me about anything as it relates to experience in your field, I can be reached at 206 206- 459-5536. That's 206-459-5536. Voices of Experience is about talking with people who are experienced in their fields of public affairs, travel, fitness, education, special events, and an emphasis with entrepreneurship. And also, I'll mention one more time, my book is Self-Employment for You, Pre-Flight Checklist, there's an 80% failure rate of people going into business for themselves. If you take a 20-question self-employment quiz, you'll find out whether you are in the ballpark of going into business for yourself as to whether you will succeed at the end. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher 
your prospects for success. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take the self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. Have a great rest of the week. Peloton, let's go. This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you.